From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As Colorado's population grows, urban development and roads crowd wildlife. The results can be deadly. The Colorado Department of Transportation and Colorado Parks and Wildlife partner on safe solutions. CDOT's mission is to save lives, and CPW's mission overlaps with ours because they're about saving wildlife and saving lives. Then, how the state's finding money for ambitious spending despite strict limits on taxes. And they rock climb together at an indoor gym in Tennessee, but they're headed to Montana to scale frozen ice walls for the first time. It is a lot of snow out there, dog. I really hope ain't no black ice on this road. Why everything that's bad got the name black? Like they be like black ice. And how you know it's black? <laughs> it looked clear to me. It looked clear to me, exactly. <laughs> we'll talk with makers of the documentary Black Ice. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. In Colorado, you live with wildlife. That's part of the beauty of this place. But there's tension as urban areas grow rapidly. They often displace animals and roads split up their roaming territory. Sometimes that's deadly. An 18-year-old woman struck an elk on I-25 north of Castle Rock early Monday morning. When she got out of her damaged car, she was hit and killed by another vehicle. This tragedy raises questions about the space that people and wildlife share in Colorado. What's being done to protect both? Part of the answer may be found in a collaboration between the Colorado Department of Transportation and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Chuck Atardo is an environmental manager for CDOT, and Brandon Moret is a land use coordinator for CPW. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Avery. Thanks for having us, Avery. This partnership between the two of you, it only developed recently. It's spurred by, in part by some legislation that we'll discuss in a bit. But Chuck, why is this relationship important from CDOT's perspective? Yeah, um, you know, in the old days, CDOT would work with our, our maintenance folks um, and um, sometimes Colorado State Patrol, and we would get feedback from them whenever we were doing a roadway project, and they would say, hey, you know, this piece of the road, we're seeing a lot of wildlife vehicle collisions here. You ought to think about trying to do something. Um, and that was that was the old days. That's, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And in the last 20 years, we're starting to sort of bond, get a better relationship with our CPW sister agency. And we mainly we realize that, you know, CDOT's mission is to um, save lives and um, to make sure we can get goods transported on our facilities in an efficient manner. And CPW's mission overlaps with ours because they're about saving wildlife and saving lives. And it just made sense to sort of get together with them, start working a little closer with them and understand their needs and them understand our needs. It only ends up with better projects in the end. And while CPW's mission is to protect wildlife, A lot of listeners may not understand that protection of people, whether it's a bear in a campground or an elk on a highway, 
We are concerned about the protection of people first. So as you're trying to protect people first and also animals, how do you each address that tension, the dynamic that exists between people and their desire to develop the land and the wildlife who have lived in these areas before they were developed and just roamed freely? Brandon? Yeah, that, that's something that keeps us up late at night, um, especially with the tragic death that recently happened. And while um, wildlife don't necessarily read signs, you know, who owns this property, who, you know, is this um, private property, is this a state park, whatever, they roam across the state. And so CPW, we really have to leverage our relationships with private landowners with different sister agencies and whoever owns the land and whether it's counties looking at master development plans for for new uh, commercial or residential properties that they plan to develop, especially like in Northern Douglas County, you know, we need to leverage those relationships so that we can have spaces for wildlife to move, not only to cross highways, but away from highways as well. One of the projects that you're working on together, Monday's accident actually happened not, not far from it in the I-25 South Gap project. It started in 2018. It covers an 18-mile stretch from Monument to Castle Rock, and it addresses wildlife safety via four crossings along with 28 miles of deer fencing. So much of that stretch is considered in comparison to its northern boundary rural area, Where the accident happened is decidedly more urban, but I understand that there has been discussion about wildlife mitigation in that vicinity. Chuck, tell us about that thought process when you're making a decision about a location like that. Yeah, Avery, you you touched on a couple key points there. So in the I-25 South Gap project, that piece of I-25 between Castle Rock and Monument, 18 miles, Douglas County has worked to preserve over 39,000 acres on both sides of I-25, huge chunks of land that are preserved forever, ever, with one of the purposes being wildlife movement and preservation. Now, that 39,000 acres doesn't even count all the Pike National Forest to the west, you know, a million more acres there. Um, and so you have this situation where CPW approaches CDOT, Douglas County's in the room, and CPW and Douglas County are saying, CDOT, we got to do something here to preserve these wildlife corridors. And that's why we were able to invest over $20 million in four underpasses, plus another one that we improved, plus the 28 miles of fence, 63 escape ramps, and 22 deer guards, which act like cattle guards. Contrast that with the situation on I-25 in the Castle Pines area. Now, that's an area that we have known as a problem for the last 10 years or so. We think that there can be something done there. And we've been meeting at least for the last month and a half to figure out what we can do in that area. But I got to say, we're worried um, because if we do something like a fence project, because there is no room for these, these, these great underpasses, we worry if we do something like a fence project, we push those animal vehicle collisions to the end of the fence lines. So you get a deer or an elk that gets up to the fence, it follows it to the end and it crosses the interstate anyway. And that's what we're worried about right now. And we're discussing and we're trying to figure out an innovative solution around that. What are some of the possible tools that you could use? You know, we're the main tool there in that area, what we've come down to is fence. And, and what I'm talking about when I say fence, it's eight foot fence. Um, so it essentially will keep elk, deer, uh, mostly elk and deer, because bear and mountain lion will still find a way over and around it. 
but hopefully keep them on the west side of the interstate. And then maybe we should back up a little bit. Brandon, tell me a little bit about what wildlife corridors are, because we keep talking about these. What are they? Yeah, and that's a great question, Avery, especially since it's uh, gaining momentum over the last few years, whether it's at the state level or the federal level. So these wildlife corridors, these are different in the eastern plains and south of Denver here. Uh, compared to up in Wyoming that you've seen those great maps, or even on the west slope of Colorado. Those are typically summer ranges where animals, big game species, are usually up high, so like up near the alpine of mountains, and then come down low for the wintertime months. But south of Denver, we don't really see that. Even though these areas are next to the Pike National Forest and wildlife can definitely use them, it's more for meeting daily and even somewhat seasonal needs, you know, where are calves going to be born, you know, where's the water that they're going to get today, you know, and the water may be on the other side of the interstate. And so you have these daily movement patterns. And so really, I see these, these wildlife corridors fulfilling a, not only seasonal needs, but also daily needs, you know, where do they want to bed down every night? You know, is that on the other side of the highway? versus getting a drink of water. Chuck mentioned innovation. Sometimes CPW has to turn into innovation and, you know, whether it's moving to road kills or uh, using camera traps to find where are these animals congregating. For the I-25 South Gap, you know, we see that there is an increased movement in the months of June and in November. And so we've tried to work with CDOT to, you know, have those variable message boards to warn motorists. But with these wildlife crossings or movement corridors, it's something that CPW is continuing to refine year after year. And Colorado has an amazing range of species. And obviously the management's going to look different for an elk than a bear. Is it difficult to manage the different kinds of species that you're trying to manage with people in urban development? Absolutely. Because one reason I became a wildlife biologist is simply for the fact that wildlife show up in places you don't expect. And so how are we, not only CPW, but CPW and CDOT and other entities, even Douglas County, how are we going to find ways for wildlife to continue to exist on the landscape with all the increase in urban development and expanding roadways and less and less open spaces for uh, for these big game species or non-game species to use for my kids, for my grandkids and their kids as well. And tell me about a federally endangered species that's also found in this area. We've been talking about this South Gap, the Preble's Meadow Jumping Mouse. That's another species that you're managing along with elk and bear and these other animals. Yes, absolutely. And again, getting back to the word innovation, uh, CDOT came up with an innovative strategy to have brush piles in these underpasses. And so a brush pile is, you know, you can think about a, a beaver dam you know, where it's just piled brush, uh, dead debris, and sticks, uh, almost like you're making a campfire, but making a long corridor for these Preble's Meadow jumping mouse to go under the underpass. Because obviously, otherwise, you know, a mouse in the open could get picked off by a predator pretty easily. So we look forward to seeing the results of these brush piles. We, CPW, actually gave... Um, CDOT some money for a follow-up study 
you know, camera study, not only, you know, are elk and deer using these underpasses, the four underpasses you referred to for the I-25 South Gap, but also for Preble's Meadow Jumping Mouse. Are these brush piles working? We want to continue to advance the science of these underpasses. They sound almost like little hotels for the mice. Right. You mentioned seasonal signs for drivers telling them that there's wildlife in the area. How much of a problem is this that drivers are not paying as much attention as they could? I think people sometimes take signs for granted. Chuck, is that true? Um, You know, drivers get habituated just like anybody else. Um, And so if a sign is up 12 months of the year, um, watch out for elk, they see that every day. And they just, after a while, it just kind of becomes background to them. But um, in partnership with CPW, we've we figured out ways to try to limit that um, by only putting up messages during the the worst times of the year. Um, so along I-25, we're talking about June and November are our highest animal vehicle collision hit months. So June and November. Um, in the Gap, for instance, the I-25 South Gap, we see more than one large mammal being hit a day. Um, you know, in the spring and and fall months. Um, So if you put a a message up to drivers only during that month or for two months, um, they tend to pay attention more. And we do see better, um, you know, results with that. Brandon, is it enough from your perspective? A lot of it has to come down to to the education of motorists. Allow extra time to get to your destination. And you know, slow down. It doesn't need to be a speed race, you know, getting from Colorado Springs to Denver, you know, and especially if you're driving at dawn and dusk. I want to ask you about some success stories. Notably in Silverthorne, there's been some real success with wildlife mitigation. Brandon, can you tell me about that? Yeah, again, that was probably right, at least right now, one of the shining examples of working with CDOT and where we have you know, two overpasses and I believe five underpasses. And that was a really tragic situation before where motorists were were dying. You know, I, I don't have those numbers right off the top of my head, but um, a few a year and many injuries. And so that was a situation that we needed to do something right away. And we just finished a summary report that shows that animal vehicle collisions have reduced by 90% in that area. And that's what we hope for in I-25 South, too, a reduction of 90% or more. Let's talk a little bit about the laws. On Friday, the state legislature passed a resolution to protect the state's wildlife corridors. The measure would conserve native species while improving road safety. It's one of a number of measures introduced here in recent years. There's also an executive order Governor Jared Polis issued in 2019 to protect big game migration corridors. When you look at all the legislation as a whole, Chuck, what stands out to you? All of it. Um, all of it happening in the last two to three years, there's tremendous momentum building over this subject um, across the country. Um, you mentioned the executive order, the Senate resolution. Um, one of the things we're tracking very closely at CDOT is the reauthorization of the federal transportation bill, where that has actually money allocated, at least the current versions, directly for wildlife mitigation. And that's why we are so excited is this subject um, is is getting pushed to the top of the discussion. And we're finally going to get some money to really do some meaningful projects. 
And I understand that the Alliance has done a pair of studies, one covering the Western Slope and another that encompasses everything east of the Continental Divide, including the Denver metro area. That second one is slated to be completed by Christmas. It looks at accidents and injuries and wildlife migration. Brandon, what do you hope will be the outcome from this? Well, I think it's an extension of the innovation that we came up with I-25 South as far as prioritizing these hotspots. Where are these wildlife vehicle collisions happening? And where do we need to put the brain power and money and talking to engineers as far as to fix these? We want safe passage for wildlife and for motorists. And so to be able to not only expand that from an 18-mile stretch, but for all of the East Slope and Plains, that's pretty exciting. And then also to be able to prioritize it and combine it with this West Slope study so that we can see from a statewide perspective. Is it Highway 13 up in the northwest corner or is it uh, US 160 in the southwest? I mean, wherever these hot spots are occurring, both CDOT and CPW, we're going to do everything we can in our power to, to allow this safe passage for wildlife and for motorists. Chuck, what do you want to learn? You know, first of all, a shout out to the alliance who this agent, this alliance has become extremely powerful over the last two years. Um, and when we talk about the alliance, it's essentially CDOT and CPW people from across the state. And what what I want out of it is this, is I'll back up Brandon on this. We need to use the alliance to pick the best projects in the state because even with um, you know, tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars coming to wildlife mitigation, we're still going to have to pick the best projects. We're not going to have enough money to do everything we want. So the Alliance is going to play that vital role in recommending to both CDOT and to CPW, hey, here are the top five projects or top 10 projects in the state that we should bite off right now. And maybe five years from now, we should be thinking about these three. And so that's that's what I hope to get out of it. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Appreciate the time, Avery. Thanks, Avery. And just another shout out to the listeners out there. Please slow down, allow extra time to get to your destination, and please be vigilant when driving. Chuck Cotardo is an environmental manager for CDOT, and Brandon Moret is land use coordinator for CPW. They joined us to discuss the efforts being made to protect wildlife and motorists in Colorado in the face of the state's increasing construction and development. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Water is a hot commodity in the West, especially for developers. So what happens if a city doesn't have enough water? for thousands of new homes. That's the situation for the city of Fountain, which is talking openly about the struggles of keeping up growth in a dry state. Here's CPR's climate and environment reporter, Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On the east side of Colorado Springs, flags and billboards line the roads advertising homes for sale turn here. Among recently built developments, hundreds of new units are under construction, and each of them requires water. That's a sprinkler watering the new green lawn of a townhouse that's only a plywood shell, still without siding or a roof. Colorado Springs is one of the fastest growing regions in the state. This boom is expanding into nearby cities, and the pressure is building. We've had just a flood of new applications come into our planning department. 
I think it's not unfair to characterize this as an explosion. That's Dan Blankenship, director of utilities for the city of Fountain, south of Colorado Springs. There are currently fewer than 9,000 taps or connections to Fountain's water supply. Over the last year, Blankenship says developers have applied for nearly 30,000 new taps to the city's water system. The bottom line is, we can't give you something that we don't have. Blankenship is telling developers that this fountain is tapped out. To support that much growth, the city would need to buy additional rights to use more water, and they would need a place to store that water. They would also need to treat it and find a way to get it to homes. We need it all. (laughs) That's getting harder to make happen in a state like Colorado, where most of the people live on the Front Range, but most of the water is on the western slope. You don't see a lot of water around here, but you see a lot of people and a lot of people that want to be here, and so then you have to bring the water from far away, and it keeps getting further and further. And so the further it goes and the longer it goes, the more expensive it is. Fountain gets most of its water from Pueblo Reservoir, which is filled with water that would otherwise end up in the Colorado River. That project started in the 1960s. It's a lot tougher to do that now just because of the environmental concerns. Climate change and worsening drought and stream flows are diminishing the Colorado River. Proposals to divert water long distances and across mountains can face decades of legal battles from environmental groups, and projects aren't being built like they once were. Scott Smith is the vice president of Land for Oakwood Homes, which owns a piece of land in Fountain. Recently, we were informed that they didn't have available water taps, and so it kind of put our project on the back burner down there. Smith is at a subdivision in Colorado Springs, where Oakwood has been building thousands of homes. He says it's becoming more common for developers who want to build big projects to have to secure water rights and pay for additional water infrastructure. But he says the situation in Fountain is unusual. Usually, you don't have a municipality that says, oh, you know, the development community is just going to have to get together and figure it out. Fountain hasn't finalized any plans yet, but they say developers are going to need to help pay the millions of dollars to buy those new water rights, reservoirs, and pipes needed to support the expected growth. Here's Dan Blankenship again with Fountain Utilities. We are looking to those who are going to benefit from bringing the water and the infrastructure to pay the cost of bringing that water and infrastructure. No matter how a developer might have to secure water for a new project, the cost to do so gets rolled into the price of a new home. Kevin Walker is with the Housing and Building Association in Colorado Springs. Everybody knows in Colorado that the number one resource question is water allocation. And millions and millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of people work on it every day. Walker doesn't believe the situation in Fountain is something developers need to worry about happening elsewhere. But Kevin Reedy with the Colorado Water Conservation Board says it's likely other water utilities are worried about how to keep up with growth, too. And that Fountain is just the first to talk so openly about the issue. We are entering a new era and we are going to have to be more open on this stuff. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this pressure happening. A big part of Reedy's job is to get water and land planners to work together. The old model was this new development's coming in. Hey, water department, go find us some water. I think we're kind of hitting that point where people are kind of saying, okay, wow, we've got to do things differently. For Fountain, that means telling developers, this city doesn't have the water you need. If you want to build here, you'll have to bring your own. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. 
Colorado's state government has some ambitious spending plans for the years to come. From child tax credits to massive transportation upgrades, paid family leave, and new funding for schools, totaling billions of dollars of new money for state services and benefits. And it's all happening despite the strict financial limits set by the taxpayers' Bill of Rights. CPR's Andrew Kinney joins us to explain a watershed moment in state politics. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Avery. Andy, we're going to talk about some ways that Democrats and progressive interests are finding to pay for state programs. But before we get to that, I think we have to talk a little bit about the constraints that they're under, which means, as I just mentioned, talking about the taxpayers' bill of rights. Yes, Tabor is something that most people know exists and that most people probably don't completely understand. It's part of the state constitution, has been since the early 1990s, and it says that uh, it makes it really hard for lawmakers to raise new taxes, raise new money for state government. It says that voters have to approve tax increases. And what we've discovered since the early 90s is that voters really don't like approving new taxes. Just a couple years ago, you may remember there was a plan to pay for new roads with taxes. It was rejected by a 20-point margin, even though voters went strongly for Democrats that year. So policymakers on the left lately are getting sick of working under the constraints of Tabor, and they've started to find ways to avoid it and get new money for the government elsewhere. Like how? Well, uh, nicely put, it's legal finessing. They're basically, you know, Tabor sets out some really specific limits that says you can do this, but not that. And so what they are doing is like embracing new legal definitions. For example, fees. It's a different way that the government collects money from you or from a business. Uh, it just the money flows in slightly different ways so that it's not technically a tax, so it doesn't have to be governed by Tabor. And an example of that would be they're paying for new transportation uh, projects with fees on purchases of gas and fees on use of services like Grubhub, for example. So what is the difference between a oh, fee God. and a tax? <laughs> so... Um, as I was kind of alluding to, there's like there's a legal difference. Like a fee just goes to is collected in a certain way, and it goes to a certain place, and it's spent arguably on something that is related to the way you spent it, uh, the way you collected it. But that's not really what's important. What's important is that in the end, a fee doesn't fall under Tabor legally, so a fee doesn't need voter approval, which is why they're using fees. So have lawmakers always been able to use this fee workaround? They have had this option for a while. Um, you know, Tabor, when it was passed, didn't really address fees. And the state's always had some kind of fees, basically, throughout its modern history. Stuff like uh, fees on hunting licenses and, you know, tolls on the roads or fees. Those are more traditional ones. But the use of them has really expanded from less than a billion dollars a year back when Tabor passed to well over $18 billion a year worth of fees today. And over that time, the state's courts have weighed in consistently and said, yeah, you can use fees for that. You can use fees for that and really strengthened the ability of lawmakers to use these. And so uh, it's been building up for a long time. But in the last year or so, policymakers, lawmakers, especially on the left, have really embraced these fees. So what changed this year or in the last few years, it sounds like? Uh, it's a couple things. I think that Democrats are getting more comfortable having power. They've run all of state government for a few years now. And at the same time, I think that reformers are also getting impatient. Um, there's this weird contrast where we're seeing Democrats gain power, 
but voters won't approve taxes to pay for Democrats' priorities. And you're also seeing pressure from outside groups who are also embracing ways to get around Tabor. And it's all adding up to basically lawmakers saying, you know what, let's go. Let's go. Let's just figure out a different way to pay for it and we'll see what happens. And it's leading people to make some like pretty dramatic pronouncements on both sides. Here's conservative organizer Michael Fields. Tabor's hanging by a thread, but it's a pretty big thread. What other strategies are they trying besides embracing feeds? I think the Democrats are also realizing or remembering that they can rewrite the tax code without voter permission. That sounds kind of complicated, but basically, instead of, say, raising the tax rate and having to go to voters for that, they can do stuff like eliminating tax breaks that favor wealthy people and big companies. That's what they're doing this year. They're using that to raise $400 million a year in revenue by kind of ironing out those loopholes and stuff. And they are then turning around and using that money to pay for some really ambitious stuff like child tax credits that could deliver hundreds of dollars per year to lower income families. Do you think that these strategies that they're permanent, do liberals and progressives think that they have finally defeated Tabor and can raise all the revenue that they want? No. (laughs) So I think that what they've found is that there are some options, but those options have flaws. Like, uh, you know, fees are, are a pretty blunt instrument. You can't really target a fee at wealthy people as precisely as you could target a tax. You know, when you put a fee on gas, everybody has to pay it, no matter how much money they have or they don't have. And that's leading people on the left to be pretty unsatisfied because they see them as regressive. And they also just see them as not the permanent, like, best solution for all this. Um, here's Scott Wasserman of the Progressive Bell Policy Center. And so I think this period will be seen as the as the moment in which we demonstrated to Coloradans that this is what happens when you fund the things you care about. If you want to continue that, you're going to need structural reform. And what about conservatives? They think this is a funny story because everybody agrees what's happening. Like everybody agrees on the facts that Tabor is being circumvented. What they don't agree on is whether that's the right thing or not. And conservatives uh, obviously hate this. They don't want to see more money go to the government. They love Tabor. Uh, They don't think that they can stop this at the Capitol building right now, but they are hoping to turn it into an election issue instead. I think this is something you put in front of them and say, look, they raised gas taxes. They raised your, your, you know, in the mill levy, your property taxes um, without voter approval. And what do you think about that? So it's kind of a bet. We'll, you know... People on the left are hoping that people will see everything that was funded and think, okay, maybe I didn't get to approve the funding for that, but I like what you did and and re-elect Democrats. Or will they say, oh boy, a lot of new fees. I don't like paying all this money. Goodbye. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Pastor Paula Stone Williams is transgender and learned about the patriarchy once she transitioned. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. Her book, As a Woman, is our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Read it and join us June 30th for a virtual chat. Free tickets at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. A new film, Black Ice, follows a group of young people from Memphis, Tennessee to Montana to try out ice climbing. But it's really about being young and black in America today. Early in the film, you hear members of the group chatting as they drive into the snowy mountains of Montana. 
it is a lot of snow out there, dog. I really hope ain't no black ice on this road. Why everything that's bad got the name black? Like they be like black ice. And how you know it's black? <laughs> it looked clear to it me. Looked clear to me, exactly. <laughs> Maybe if y'all didn't paint the streets black, it wouldn't be black. <laughs> Maybe if it had an opportunity to be on top of the snow. <laughs> Zachary Barr is with Boulder-based Real Rock, a documentary production company, and a film tour. He directed the film. Malik Martin was featured in Black Ice and helped shoot it as well. They spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Zach, Malik, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us this morning. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Malik, give me a little picture of South Memphis, where you grew up. What was it like? South Memphis, you know, it's a beautiful place. It's a well tight knit community. It's just one of the places that has been overlooked and abandoned over the years. You know, when it comes to infrastructure or anything, it needs upkeep. And in my neighborhood, there's certain places if you drive through, it looks like places through the 80s, you know. But back when I was a child, it was a thriving, beautiful place with painted sidewalks and, you know, well-off people who own their houses, who've been living there their whole life, and just, you know, real neighborly and close-knit. Uh, but with anything, you know, pressure make diamonds. So even though it may be hard in a lot of places, there's a lot of beauty, a lot of art, and a lot of history that oozes through our streets and through our individual citizens that come from this place. And Malik, the film also focuses in on this climbing facility that was built, Memphis Rocks, that helped enhance the area's sense of community. What is it about the place and climbing that helped bring people together? Um, South Memphis has always been a communal area. Like, it takes a village is something that's an old African proverb. But poverty and trauma impacts certain people living under it differently. And the gym came in and kind of gave a safe place to recreate. Because over the years in the projects, it just seems that, like, Things have been taken away, but things weren't added in the way of that the school systems, you have to live up to a certain amount of passing rate. And if you don't have another pass rate, we close down the schools. So there's not as many schools as there used to be when it comes to community centers and safe places to recreate. The funding has been closed down and shut down. So like the kids had nowhere to go. And, you know, when it comes to things of poverty, when it comes to things of, um, you know, crime, it all comes from people having not. Memphis Rocks became a safe space and a pillar in the community where people could safely come recreate, a safe place where you can come get something to eat, a safe place where we're redefining what currency is, meaning that money isn't the only way that you can pay something for it. You can come with your time and your energy. We opened many doors and invited people in. You know, the community was there and Memphis Rocks just brought, you know what I'm saying, a foundation that the community could stand on. So it's optional whether you pay when you go in. And we also hear from Christine in the film talking about rock climbing and what it can teach people. When you rock climb, you have to relearn communication from how we was raised. On blade. To be able to be vulnerable to say, damn, like, I've never done this before, or, oh, I'm scared of heights, or like, you really got me? You just experienced this power. And Malik Christine, who we just heard from, uh, runs Memphis Rocks. What does he mean by rock climbing and having to relearn communication? So when you rock climb, you're in a vulnerable position because typically you're 20 to 40 feet. In the gym, you're like 20 to 40 feet off the ground outside even higher and someone literally is holding onto your life in their hands 
And so to, you know, to have that trust on um, just saying on belay, if someone says belay on, you have to have enough trust in them that they check their gear, everything is weighted properly, et cetera. So like relearning communication, um, learning how to be more attentive while someone is, you know, having a super focus, and especially if you're outside on a high wall, like I've never have been so tuned in and when I'm just, when I'm doing crack climbing or when I don't want to die on the side of a mountain, you know, I'm like super right. tuned in. <laughs> and Zach, during the film, some experienced climbers visit Memphis and propose this idea of an ice climbing trip. How much does climbing in a facility like Memphis Rocks translate to actual ice climbing? Most everyone these days learns to climb in a rock climbing gym. That's a universal experience all over the world. So, you know, you learn the movement, you learn the safety, um, you learn to enjoy it. But what you don't learn is, you know, how to freeze in a winter camping trip in Montana, uh, sleep in a tent outside, cook all your own food, hike through the snow, keep your toes from falling off. So these guys had a um, little trial by fire, for sure, in the movie. One of the members of the group that we get to know really well um, that heads to Montana is a kid named Salacio. Um, Zach, tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Matt, Salacio's a, a kid. He's, he's 20 uh, when we, the film meets him in South Memphis. And, you know, he's had a really rough go of it. Unfortunately, he's like a lot of young people from that neighborhood. He grew up without his parents. He grew up in poverty. And he literally is hungry a lot of the time. He doesn't have enough, always have enough food or enough money. Or, and especially, he doesn't have enough love and support in his life. And so Memphis Rocks does its best to love and support him. Slacio works at Memphis Rocks at the climbing gym. He actually works in the juice bar making smoothies. And it's a well-paying job that um, is, is critical for him in his life. Memphis Rocks is a safe place. So Memphis Rocks is a place to get something to eat. And so in the film, when Salacio gets invited on this trip, he's never left his neighborhood. He's never been on a plane. But what he has had is a lot of incredible experiences of survival. He's tough as nails. And, you know, if anyone can sleep outside in snow and learn how to climb ice, it's Salacio. He actually has some injuries uh, from a shooting. Yeah, he was, he was actually shot when he was in high school, which was just a few years back. And he's just learning still how to deal with that. He's, one of his arms doesn't work that well. And the bullet actually also went through his jaw and messed up his teeth. And he's had to relearn how to talk. And this trip in this movie, I think, really showed him that he is beyond capable, that he can, you know, especially with love and support and some people around him to help him, he can make it in this life and he can succeed. So the group heads to Montana and there's lots of talk about Montana and its whiteness. Someone says the place is so white, it hurts your eyes. Malik, how would you describe what it was like for the group to first show up in Montana? Yeah, when we landed in Montana, it was like all eyes on us. I'm pretty sure they'd never seen that large group of black people coming through the airport or moving through the town at once. Uh, but it was just like, you know, a, a full change of scenery. You know, basically, if you were just to hop on some kind of 
magical transportation device that flies across the country and uh you pop up to somewhere memphis is flat 300 feet sea level you know going up to like eight thousand feet you know a big shock for anyone the views is taking it all in and wondering what we're gonna climb like we're gonna climb that mountain it's like no you'll die sir you know we ain't gonna climb that one <laughs> but uh it, it was just nice you know it's just like anywhere else in america is a minority it's no shock to be surrounded by whiteness because as a minority you're always surrounded by whiteness it's just whiteness with mountains and snow so that was a different you know experience and just seeing how people who don't know how to walk on snow and trying to walk down the street and slip in the slide was funny to see we when salacio's on the the plane malik asks him like hey salacio how are you feeling right now and salacio says looks out the window of the plane and says i feel like a powerful man right now and for me, that just was such a great moment in the movie, but also personally, you know, a little wake up call to my, my privilege and my place in this world where I look, I've been on a lot of plane flights, but let's face it, it is an extremely privileged thing to do. And it also makes you feel on top of the world. And, you know, it's, it's cool to give the slice to that experience. He, he deserves it. And if you're not familiar with ice climbing, watching it in this film looks really hard. You're climbing on this frozen waterfall. And Zach, tell us about what ice climbing entails. Well, it's a pretty weird sport. I ain't gonna lie. Um, you got these ice axes in your hands, and you, which are spikes, and you got spikes on your feet that are called crampons. And these tools allow you to kind of dance up the exterior of, of a vertical frozen wall. And again, just like traveling on a trip or camping outside in the winter or trying something new it makes you feel a little bit like a superhero and when you get to the top of that thing you know it's like breaking those five boards in karate or something you just feel like you can do anything in life and malik what were your thoughts when you first uh, tried ice climbing in montana um i was just really exhausted because what you don't know in the movie is the sound man told me to wear three extra jackets that I didn't need to wear. So I like overheated and sweated out before I got to the climb. But it's just an adjustment. You can climb all you want to in a gym, but to climb outside in the snow is a full different tactical way of going about getting up the wall. But you do feel like a superhero. I love having ice climbing equipment. To be able to brave and face those conditions willingly, to willingly put yourself in discomfort for the joy and the views of going through that experience. The majority of the populace never gets to experience that, you know? So to be able to share that with my peers and especially subjugated group of people, being in South Memphians who never typically would get to experience something like that is just phenomenal. There's also a funny scene that I have to point out where the group is setting up tents to camp and struggling a bit. Here we are, negative 10 degree weather, sleeping outside. I don't get snow in it. These tents don't even go down to the ground. These motherfuckers do not look warm. Really? Yeah, that's how we sleep. You want to be big spoon or little spoon? We all were a little overwhelmed. Zach, the most touching part of the film is watching Salacio learn to climb on ice, given his injuries from the shooting. He can't use one of his arms, so he's coached to sort of use his hips um, to pull himself up. At one point, he seems to get pretty defeated. What was it like to watch him begin to get it? Man, it was just one of the best experiences of my whole life. I mean, to see that by just giving someone some tips, being there for them, um, 
making sure they have the right clothing, the right equipment, that they can do it. I mean, he went from feeling like this was not for him, his disability was not going to allow him to get to the top of that mountain, to being feeling like he's invincible, to feeling like the world is for him. And, you know, I've been filming climbing now for probably almost a decade and been lucky enough to film with some of the best rock climbers and mountain climbers in the world. And I can honestly say that this was, for me, the most moving and important story that I've had the privilege to work on. Um, one thing that I want to say that is very telling through this movie is how society casts away people. Because I watched Black Ice with doctors and physical therapists. And the first thing these people are saying are that, that they're shocked and or appalled that like salatio, oh my God, with just a bit something different, we can get some veneers and do this. And over time, it doesn't have to be like one huge reconstructive surgery. So what you see is a lot of black people, brown people, people of color living in, you know, distraught circumstances, extremely traumatic things that are out of their hands happen to them. And society does not care and you live with it. In Salatio's day-to-day life, he does not draw disability and does not live as a disabled individual. And I want people to learn to care for distraught people in traumatic situations before we make a movie and they cry on screen. And the amazing thing is that there are doctors out there that could really help Salatio with some of the physical challenges that he has. That's so true. And, you know, Thankfully, the movie, um, a few folks have seen the movie and already reached out and and wanted to help. But yeah, man, I mean, like Malik says, like, um, we'd love for that support to be there all the time, not just because Lacey is in this movie and, you know, climbed to the top of the mountain. Any sense of whether you think some folks in this group are going to become lifelong ice climbers? Lifelong ice climbers? I doubt it, but I will say... You know, we're plotting to go to Everest next year. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know about lifelong, but my kids, yeah, they probably going to have to climb some ice once or twice in their life, you know, just, you know, just to keep them honest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe not lifetime ice climbers, but perhaps lifetime stargazers, maybe lifetime dreamers, lifetime travelers, lifetime comrades, you know, lifetime friends. You know, the, the point of this trip in this movie is not climbing. You know, it's about dreaming for a better life and and working together to achieve that. Zach, Malik, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you so much for having us. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Zachary Barr of Boulder-based Real Rock. He directed the film Black Ice. Malik Martin is featured in the film and also helped shoot it. He just won the Student Choice Award at Telluride Mountain Film. It will also be showing tomorrow evening at 6 at the Boulder Theater. Colorado's night skies continue to get darker, and that's perfect for stargazing. The Montrose County towns of Nucla and Natarita have been designated international dark sky communities. So what does that mean? I asked Val Schwark that question when the western slope town of Ridgeway was also recognized last August. Dark sky designation is at the town that series of criteria, and that criteria is is they have a, a rigorous lighting ordinance in place that meets IDA guidelines, the International Dark Sky Association guidelines. You need to have educational um, uh, outreach events and educational brochures and community support letters from key uh, organizations, for instance, your, your local government. 
county commissioners. And finally is that you need a, a sky brightness measurement program that focuses on determining how dark it is. And how do you measure the darkness of the sky? Typically, a uh, handheld instrument is used that measures photons. It's referred to as a sky quality meter, or SQM. The application for a dark sky designation lists four priorities. One is to celebrate the night. That sounds so festive. What does that actually mean to celebrate the night? That's basically is to, to bring some awareness to the benefits of dark night sky and also to point out how, how it's an urgent environmental threat, especially for folks that maybe live most of their life or all their life on the East Coast or West Coast or maybe the Front Range that, that really may, may have not seen the Milky Way um, until they come out to, to the West Slope and to a dark location and, and see that streaming cloud across the sky. And so it's, it's really to, to bring awareness to... Um, the fact that that's an environmental consideration that we ought to think about preserving um, like we try to preserve the air, the clean air that we breathe, and clean water that we drink. Preserving a dark sky is not only important for just preservation of the dark, starry skies for ourselves, but also for wildlife and for insects, which require very pristine dark skies for navigation and just their, their own life cycles. Val Schwark talking with me last August. He's an amateur astronomer who helped earn international dark sky designations for the Colorado towns of Norwood and Ridgeway. Nucla and Naturita are the latest communities in the state to get that designation. They join Crestone, Westcliff, and Silvercliff, along with some parks. Mesa Verde, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and the Great Sand Dunes. Happy stargazing! Thank you for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.